Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 24, Joshua chapters 22 and 23. We're going to continue today in, the, uh, in Joshua chapter 22, a chapter that has some quite dramatic theology and practical implications contained in it. And I outlined for you last week that we'd identify four, although there are more, important questions that are addressed in this chapter. And the first one is, who are God's people? Second one, where is the proper worship of God to take place? Third, what is the proper worship of God? And fourth, does our heartfelt sincerity and good intentions as believers trump God's actual laws and commands? And these questions are broached in Joshua 22 within the backdrop of an incident whereby... Three of the twelve tribes of Israel, um, at two and a half tribes actually, were being mustered out of Joshua's army. And they were being allowed to return home to their land of inheritance, which was on the east side of the uh, Jordan River. Now, on their way back from fighting, which was really only a few days' journey, these three tribes stopped as they approached the Jordan. And before crossing over to their land, they built an altar on the western bank of uh, the Jordan River. Now, when the ten, actually nine and a half, according to the Bible, tribes of, of Israel who had decided to take their land inheritance inside the land of Canaan, the promised land, when they heard of this, they heard of the building of that altar. They took it to mean that those three tribes had either decided to worship another god altogether or they were establishing an alternative place for worship as opposed to the current one, which was in Shiloh, which is right up here in the territory of Ephraim. Now, fortunately, cooler heads prevailed and uh, Pincus, often referred to as Phineas, all right, in, in some Bibles, who was the son of the high priest, Eleazar, along with ten head men representing the ten tribes of Israel who were remaining in the promised land, they formed a delegation to go and confront the leaders of those three tribes prior to battle commencing. And these three tribes expressed complete shock at the reaction of the ten tribes and assured the delegation that their intent was to display unity, not division. And it was their sincere desire to retain their common identity with Israel. That was what led them to building this altar. This altar. Now further, while there is no um, denying that this indeed was an altar, in fact, they made the point that it was essentially a replica of the Wilderness Tabernacles altar, that they did not intend to use it as an altar. 
Rather, it would only be a symbol. It would be a reminder of the common beginnings of the twelve tribes. Now, the word used for characterizing the purpose for this altar was in Hebrew, ed, ed, ed. And ed most literally means a witness. It's the same word used for a witness in a judicial trial. Let's reread a short section of Joshua 22 together. We're going to read Joshua 22, verses 21 to the end. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page um, 266. Then the descendants of Reuben, the descendants of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, answered the leaders of the thousands of Israel. The mighty one, God, is Adonai. He knows, and Israel will know, if we've acted in rebellion or treachery against Adonai, then don't vindicate us today. We haven't built an altar in order to turn away from following Adonai or to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings or sacrifices of peace offerings. If we have, let Adonai himself require us to atone for it. Rather, we did this out of anxiety because we thought sometime in the future your descendants might say to our descendants, you didn't have anything to do with Adonai, the God of Israel, because Adonai made the Jordan the border between us and you. So you descendants of Reuben and Gad have no share in Adonai. In this way, your descendants could make our descendants stop fearing Adonai. So we said, let us now make preparations and build ourselves an altar. Not for burnt offerings or sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you and between our generations who will come after us so that we may perform the service for Adonai in his presence with our burnt offerings, sacrifices and peace offerings so that your descendants will not say to our descendants at some future time, you have no share in Adonai. For this reason, we said, when they accuse us or future generations in this way, we'll say, look. Here's a replica of the altar of Adonai, which our ancestors made, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices, sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against Adonai and turn away today from following Adonai by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, other than the altar of Adonai, which stands in front of his tabernacle. When Pinchas the... The, the Kohen, the priest, and the leaders of the community, the heads of the thousands of Israel who were with him, heard what the descendants of Reuben, the descendants of Gad, and the descendants of Manasseh said, it satisfied them. And Pincus, the son of Eleazar, the Kohen, said to the descendants of Reuben, Gad, and the descendants of Manasseh, today we know that Adonai is here with us, because you have not committed this treasonous act against Adonai. Now you have saved the people of Israel from the anger of Adonai. So Pincus, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders returned from the descendants of Reuben and Gad and from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan and the people of Israel bringing word back to them. What they said satisfied the people of Israel. The people of Israel blessed God and said no more about going to wage war against the descendants of Reuben and Gad and destroying the land where they lived. The descendants of Reuben and Gad called the altar aid between us, a witness that Adonai is God. So the three Israelite tribes 
of the Transjordan make it crystal clear that they know no other God than Yehovah, the God of Israel, that Yehovah is the God of gods, and they had no intention of performing sacrifices on that altar that they built. Rather than building this altar, um, rather, rather uh, the building of this altar was simply their attempt to show solidarity with their brethren on the west side of the Jordan as well as creating a kind of insurance policy so that they wouldn't be removed from being classified as the people of God simply because they chose to live on the east bank of the Jordan River. Now, please make a mental note on something important here. Those three tribes could have built any number of other kinds of monuments to accomplish the same thing. Erecting standing stones as memorials and, and, and boundary markers was common among all the Middle Eastern cultures and the Israelites did the same thing. And we read about it in the Torah and in earlier chapters of Joshua. Why did they have to build such a sensitive thing as an altar? Something that has such deeply religious significance. You know, a very interesting thing is said in verse 28 is translated well in some Bible translations, but frankly not in our complete Jewish Bible. It says that the three tribes built a replica of the altar of burnt offering in our complete Jewish Bibles. Many other versions will say they built a copy of the altar. The best translation though is from the good old reliable King James Version that says they built a pattern of the altar of burnt offering the Hebrew word is tabnit right? and copy or replica is really not the best choice of words to translate it it in me, indeed means form it means pattern Okay. The original altar of burnt offering is said to be a tabnit of the one in heaven. Now the rabbis and sages recognize as self-evident that the physical can only approximate the spiritual. Okay. Therefore, all that the physical can ever hope to do is to follow a pattern of the spiritual principle it's demonstrating. So whatever this altar looked like that they built, it sure didn't look precisely. It wasn't a Xerox copy of the one that was used at the tabernacle, but it did employ the pattern in the sense that it embraced God's construction instructions from the Torah, at least in their minds. In fact, it could easily have been far more grand than the one that was used at the tabernacle. And it probably was from the tone of the text and and the harsh reaction of those ten tribes. Remember, the altar for the tabernacle was made of metal and it was portable. The altar that the three tribes built near Jordan would have been anything but portable. They didn't want it moved. And probably wasn't metal it could have been rather easily stolen. Right? Instead, it was probably the more, more typical stone that was used in, in that era. Now, let's stop for a moment and talk about this in a whole other light. 
Did the three tribes commit a sinful act by building that altar? Assuming the leadership had no intent of sacrificing upon it, nor giving it some kind of holy status, had they done something wrong by building it? Now, I suspect if you asked a dozen pastors and rabbis and clergy, you'd get a dozen different answers. Because this brings us back to what I presented at the outset of our lesson as the question that is so problematic within the modern church. Does my heartfelt sincerity and good intentions as a disciple of Jesus trump God's written and clear commands? Even though on the one hand, the building of the altar was based on a kind of selfish concern and an unspoken suspicion of these three Transjordanian tribes, on the other, they were just as aware of human nature as we are and it worried them. These three tribes of the Transjordan wanted wanted to continue to be counted as God's people. They wanted to be identified with Israel because they deeply valued that identity. They feared that not living inside the promised land with their brethren would eventually cost them their Hebrew identity. Times change. Political climates change. Leadership changes. New agendas. New alliances are created. People forget In only a few generations, they were afraid that they might be seen as aliens, as foreigners to Israel. So what might they do to avert this awful possibility? Well, in so many ways, this narrative is prophetic of what did happen when Israel was forcibly exiled from their land. Or centuries later, when many... Hebrew families voluntarily migrated for a myriad of reasons to Europe and Asia and the Far East. It was never their intent that by leaving the Holy Land that they were also going to leave behind their Hebrew identity or their God. But in time we find that those who continued living in the Promised Land denied that many of these Hebrew families were even part of Israel anymore. Or they may have accepted that there was some ancient attachment, but now they see those who lived outside the Holy Land as lesser Hebrews, not meriting full consideration or citizenship as God's people. Now, as full of sincerity and good intent as those three Transjordanian tribes were, they were also within an eyelash of not only losing their Israelite identity, but of being destroyed for doing little more than building an altar. Now, I asked the rhetorical question, did the three Transjordanian tribes do anything wrong in this story? Here's the thing. By their own account, they were sincere in their desire to worship God. Their intent was to live outside of the promised land, which, by the way, was sanctioned by Moses, but also to continue to be seen as part of the community of God. 
but the Torah does not give them permission to do what they did. They ignored the reality that it was the Levites who were to handle all matters of public worship. They ignored that there could only be one altar at one location. So they built an altar, one patterned after the tabernacle altar, but then said, well, it's not really an altar because they don't intend to worship at it or sacrifice upon it. I wonder how long it would have been before they did. I can tell you with certainty that within a very few years after Joshua conquered Canaan and the tabernacle and the altar were set up at uh, Shiloh, horned altars modeled after the uh, tabernacle, uh, tabernacle altar popped up in Hebrew homes and in fields all over Canaan. Because several of them have been discovered. And, and we're going to find many prophets of the Bible complaining about this happening. And warning that this is a great affront to God, no matter what the intent was. Now, let me give you an illustration before I make my point about the important principle contained in this episode of Joshua. I don't know anyone who doesn't think they are capable of controlling most aspects of their life. As humans, and especially as young humans, we often believe we can do dangerous things, but we'll come away unscathed. We believe that while others might harm themselves, we're different. We're a little bit immune. People who become horribly addicted to illicit drugs did not set out to be addicts. Most of them either believed they could mess around with these substances and take them or leave them at their will, or they were so careless and immature that they never even considered that there could be a very serious downside lurking out there in the shadows. I also have no doubt that the vast majority of those Israelites in the Promised Land who eventually built home altars didn't do it with the intent of being rebellious. I suspect many began with the same idea as the three Trans-Jordanian tribes. The home altar was just a symbol. It was a monument to their faith in Jehovah. It was maybe the next generation or the one after that that said, well, you know, it's sure a long way to Shiloh. Why wouldn't God accept my sacrifice here at my own altar? He is indeed a loving and merciful God, isn't he? After all, he knows my heart. He knows I'm so sincere in my worship of him. See, here's the thing that virtually every generation of God's people, whether they be traditional Hebrews or Messianic Jews or Gentile Christians, we've all struggled with it. All proper worship of God begins with obedience, not sincerity. Even the leaders of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, even if they were 
fully truthful and never intended to worship at that altar, nor did they ever wish to change gods, they should not have built that altar to start with, whether it was going to be used as an altar or not. By all we know from the Holy Scriptures, the three tribes' intent and desire to worship God properly and to remain identified with God's people, all of this was only meant for good. But at the same time, the way they chose to go about displaying their sincerity was actually outlawed by Torah, even though they modified its purpose just a bit to get around the letter of the law to their way of thinking. And it almost cost them their lives and the lives of their families. Now, this issue of sincerity trumping God's commands to the minds of his believers manifests itself in so many ways. One of my pet peeves, because I think it's such a slippery slope and because as humans we're so predictable in our path, has to do with Christianity's propensity to make symbols of things that the Torah, including the Ten Commandments, outlaws. And before I take this on, don't think I'm judging anyone or accusing anybody of idolatry. But I am boldly saying to anyone within earshot that you may well have inadvertently put yourself in the same precarious situation as those tribes of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh did, and you've done it in almost identical fashion. By By means of using biblically outlawed symbols, albeit for a purpose that you see as sufficiently different than the prohibited ones. God says, don't make symbols or images of me, don't make symbols of me or about me using earthly creatures. But we go ahead and do it. And we say that it only matters if we bow down and worship them. We can make the symbol and use it just as long as we don't bow down to it. The Israelites said to themselves, we can build those home altars if we just don't ever sacrifice upon them. Or if we do sacrifice, it'll be a different kind of sacrifice than they do at the tabernacle altar. The Israelites also said that in the name of peace and love and neighborliness, let's participate in the celebrations that honor our pagan friends and neighbors' gods. Those people who live among us. Just as long as we don't ever call that God our God. Their thought was that we and the people around us, our friends and family, we're strong enough. We can resist the urge to take that next step. It's our intent and sincerity that God's looking at, not our actual behavior. Well, we all know where that led. Just in a very few years with Israel, in less than a decade after this incident with the altar, we find Israel on a severe downward spiral. In fact, that's why this altar incident is central to understanding the book that follows Joshua, which is the book of Judges. Because in Judges, we're going to see what happens 
among God's people when sincerity trumps obedience. When the thing that's dangerously close to sin becomes sin. Now, there are other ramifications of this altar incident that are pertinent to the modern followers of the God of Israel. See, the problem of the altar wasn't only a basic theological one, whereby it appeared that Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh were rebelling against God's priests and priesthood, and therefore against the laws of Moses. On a more earthly, practical level, the problem was that warfare was threatened as a result because of suspicion and mistrust among the community of God's people, those 12 tribes. The nine and a half tribes were essentially accusing the other tribes of apostasy. And interestingly enough, it was not a matter of differences in doctrines. It was a difference in place of worship and in manner of worship that was at the heart of the problem. Any of that sound familiar? Okay. The good news is that we see this all handled in a way that's a model for confronting the inherent difficulties that arise with a widely dispersed body that holds differing perspectives. Rather than go to war, the accuser, Pincus, listened to the reasoning of the accused, the three tribes. Even admitting to some degree that it might be the accuser who's in error. Okay. A compromise was reached and a workable format of unity was maintained. Now the whole group, all 12 tribes, now they could continue to bless the holy name of Jehovah together and be blessed by the God of Israel together even though they lived in very different places under very different circumstances that would necessarily affect the details of worship procedures. Now, what I've just described to you is a pretty good picture of the church struggling to maintain unity in the midst of diversity, isn't it? Okay. But it is also a struggle of Judaism, who on the one hand wants to be accepted in this Gentile-dominated world, but on the other, doesn't want to lose its identity as the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the people of Torah. Now, we don't have to read very far back into history to see division within the church that has led to the creation of what is today thousands of denominations, most of which want little, if anything, to do with one another. Bloodshed. Inquisition, wars have resulted. We see similar things in Judaism that have led to multiple divisions of the Hebrew faith, whereby some sects accuse others of not even being Jews due to their unique set of doctrines and, and values. Most of us are aware that those Jews who accept their Jewish Messiah Yeshua are among those who are considered outcasts, even traitors to Judaism. 
And this has even been built in to the laws of the nation of Israel, such that it's nearly impossible for a Messianic Jew to become an Israeli citizen. As intractable a struggle as this has been within Christianity on the one side and within Judaism on the other, the unfolding of God's prophetic book in our lifetimes has suddenly thrust these two highly separated tracks of Judeo-Christianity together in a way that was unimaginable even when I was a teenager. We have Christians all around the world of all faiths and denominations reaching out to the Jewish people and the Jewish people reaching back. And this infant relationship is uneasy. And it's full of anxiety. And it's not always very comfortable. We don't know how to behave around each other. And we don't know what to expect. Christians are as the two and a half tribes, so to speak. Who, although physically living outside of the designated promised land and outside of the formal community of Israel, we want our identity to be as the people of God. The formal community of God, the Jews, is as the nine and a half tribes, so to speak, who physically live in the land of Canaan, now called Israel, and they say that they're not opposed to our living within the community of Israel's God, but it has to be under the proper kind of worship and that they're the keepers and defenders and determiners of just what that proper worship is. That part of the Christian community who, like Torah class, seeks a close relationship with the Jewish people tend to want to adopt symbols and traditions that are Jewish in nature with the sincerest intention uh, intention of using those symbols to declare our identity and solidarity with the Jewish community. And just like the altar erected by the two and a half tribes, by using these symbols, we Christians have built this monument of good intentions for all the world to see. But we built it on their side of the river. And for many Jews, they're suspicious. And they don't trust us in our intent. Some delegations of Jews have come to Christians and now they understand we have no intention of disrupting or polluting their worship or degrading their symbols by our incorporation of those symbols into our Christian worship, particularly as we have attached a new meaning to them. But it still remains a source of trouble. And it will probably continue to be a source of trouble until Messiah comes and all human needs for symbols is gone. So this chapter ends with the understanding that all was well, that those who lived on the other side of the Jordan could identify with the God of Israel just as those who lived inside the promised land. And just as importantly, Proper worship was also possible 
without the requirement of physical residence inside the promised land. Two very big principles have been established here. Let's move on to Joshua chapter 23. This is a short chapter and we're going to finish it today. A long time afterwards, when Adonai had given Israel rest from all their surrounding enemies and Joshua was old, with age taking its toll, Joshua summoned all Israel, their leaders, heads, judges, officials, and said to them, I'm old. Age is taking its toll. You have seen everything that Adonai your God has done to all these nations because of you. For it is Adonai your God who has fought on your behalf. Here, I have allotted to you land for inheritance according to your tribes between the Jordan and the Great Sea to the west. It includes the land of the nations I've destroyed and the nations which remain. Adonai your God will thrust them out ahead of you, drive them out of your sight, so that you will possess their land as Adonai your God told you. Therefore be very firm about keeping and doing everything written in the book of the Torah of Moses and not turning aside from it either to the right or to the left. Then you won't become like those nations remaining among you. Don't even mention the name of their gods, let alone have people swear by them, serve them, or worship them, but cling to Adonai your God as you've done to this day. This is why Adonai has driven out great, strong nations ahead of you. And it explains why no one has prevailed against you to this day. Why one man of you has chased a thousand. It's because Adonai your God's fought on your behalf as he said to you. Therefore, take great care to love Adonai your God. Otherwise, if you retreat and cling to the remnant of those other nations remaining among you, if you make marriages with them, have children with them, and they with you, know for certain that and I, your God, will stop driving out these nations from your sight. Instead, they'll become a snare and a trap for you, whipping your sides, pricking your eyes until you perish from this good land which Adonai, your God, has given to you. Today, I'm going the way of all the earth. Therefore, consider in all your heart and being that not one of all these good things Adonai, your God, said concerning you has failed to happen. It has all come to pass. Nothing of it has failed. Nevertheless, nevertheless, just as all the good things Adonai your God promised you have come upon you, likewise Adonai will bring upon you all the bad things too. Until he has destroyed you from this good land upon which Adonai your God has given you. When you violate the covenant of Adonai your God, which he has ordered you to obey, and you go and serve other gods, and you worship them, then the anger of Adonai will blaze up against you, and you will perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. Well, as the book of Joshua winds down, we are here given Joshua's farewell address. Joshua is giving this either at Shiloh, which is the civil and religious headquarters in this era for Israel, or perhaps he's called these leading men of Israel to his home in Timnat Serah, on the mountains of Ephraim. I suspect it was at Timnat Serah, because Joshua was now very old. He was approaching 110 years. Travel would have been pretty difficult. And he likely would have followed the pattern, I think, of Moses. 
right, who gave his farewell address in the mountains of Moab. Now, giving an address on the heights of a hill was symbolic of the words carrying great power and authority, in many cases, divine power and authority. Now, I've drawn the parallel for you in earlier lessons of Jesus' seminal speech that we call the Sermon on the Mount because it was given on a high hilltop overlooking the Sea of Galilee. I've compared that to Moses' sermon that's actually the basis for the entire book of Deuteronomy that he gave on a hilltop in Moab of the Transjordan. Now, Moses and Yeshua's speeches were filled with new and wondrous concepts. Joshua's was not. Joshua's speech was just a reminder for Israel to follow the ways of God that were already set down by Moses. Joshua really had nothing to add to what Moses said, and he didn't claim that he did. He only meant to exhort Israel to doing what Yehovah through Moses said to do. Now, because the giving of the Torah, the law of Moses, was so central to all that was going to happen in God's redemptive plan, Joshua was emphasizing that just because Israel had gained a new leader when Moses died and would gain another new leader at Joshua's imminent death, nothing about the Lord's laws and commands had or would change. Now, this is a principle that is in desperate need of revival in the modern church. Because the only surviving part of that credo is that God never changes. Yet the never-changing God apparently changed his laws and commands that he said were forever. Now notice that even in Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount, on that speech, when, when a great spiritual transformation was underway, that he too was very careful to exhort his listeners to continue following Moses. Don't think I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a yud or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. The central message in this farewell address of Joshua is contained in verses 6, 7, and 8. There Joshua pleads with the people to lay hold of just what kind of wonderful future awaits them. The Lord says he will finish driving out the Canaanites from the promised land, but, and here's the key, Israel must be obedient to God. And this secured by following the Torah. Joshua warns the people against idolatry because Israel's uniqueness among all the nations of the earth is dependent on their cleaving to Jehovah their God. While the nations serve many gods, Israel serves but one. And the way to idolatry, Joshua warns, is contact with the nations that are both still in the promised land and those that are nearby. The issue of succumbing to this horrendous sin is why Joshua says that Israel should not even mention the name of their gods 
nor invoke their names in an oath, let alone worship them. You see, the thing that Israel just could not grasp, even yet, was that Yehovah claimed to fulfill all the functions for which other nations needed a multitude of gods. Every nation outside of Israel had gods who were ba- gods based in nature. They were gods of the various functions of the natural world, like rain and fire and wind and storms and fertility. There was a sun god, a moon god, a god of the oceans, a god of the rivers. The universally accepted understanding of the world in that era was that one not had not only to approach a god of a specific function, but that every nation even had their own and different set of gods. In verse 11, we find the antidote to all of these dangers that awaits Israel if they should think to stray. Love God. At the risk of being a broken record, let me say it again. The result of our redemption ought to be to love God. And the result of our loving God ought to be obedience to Him. Because for God, obedience is the love language of His worshipers. While Joshua's message is at first uplifting, reminding the people that God has fulfilled His promises to them at every step and that God is able to and wants to and will fulfill all of His promises, what then follows, unfortunately, is a message of doom. Blessing will last only as long as total faithfulness to the God of Israel lasts. If Israel begins to dabble in other gods, if Israel begins to behave like the other nations around here who don't have Jehovah as their God, then God will see them as not that generation through which His promises will come. Worse, they'll lose their land inheritance. Back they'll go into the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they were just wanderers looking for a homeland. When they were foreigners no matter where they lay their heads. You see, God's redemption can be taken back. God's inheritance can be removed and given to another more faithful generation. This is a principle that as followers of Messiah Yeshua, we must always keep fearfully in the forefront of our minds and never get so comfortable in our relationship with Him as to think that God will not act to preserve His holiness and His justice, even if it means the ultimate harm to us. This is expressed in a number of places in the New Testament. Here is but one, Hebrews 6.1. Therefore, leaving behind the initial lessons about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of turning from works that lead to death, trusting God, instructions about washings and semicha, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal punishment. And God willing, this is what we'll do. For when people have once been enlightened, when they've tasted the heavenly gift, when they've become shares in the Ruach HaKodesh and tasted that goodness of God's word and the powers of the Olam Haba, the world to come, 
and then they've fallen away, it's impossible to renew them so that they return from their sin. Here in Romans 11, 11 11.22, so take a good look at God's kindness and severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off. On the other, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. See, the blessings that God has promised are as certain as the sun rising in the morning. Just as certain are that the curses that God has promised will curtail all those blessings and even exile all those who serve other masters, other gods. For why, if you seek the blessings of another god, would the god you have shunned provide them to you? Israel is without excuse. This generation who has conquered Canaan personally witnessed the Lord drive out their enemies ahead of them, provide for their every need, give them rest. Therefore, whatever rebellion they commit against Him is going to be viewed as intentional and with malice. If God is just, then He has no choice but to act justly. He must destroy those who were formerly His. We'll begin the final chapter of Joshua next time we meet.